Welcome to Where We Land, a podcast that explores the relationship between Christ, culture, and the church. Hey everyone, my name is Aaron Mansfield, and you're listening to Where We Land, and today I am joined in the studio with my co-host, Miss Morgan McClure. What is up, everybody? And Mr. Stephen Vaughn. Hello. Hey guys, we are thrilled uh, to be with you today. We are talking and continuing our conversation of what is the church. And today we're going to be talking about the role of women in the church. So we hope that you stay tuned for the whole episode today. Right, guys. So we are here with my long-awaited favorite episode of this season, and we are talking. Morgan's about, been waiting for this. I am. I'm thrilled. I'm excited, thrilled. Actually, I'm excited to talk about this today. Or is it like of the entire podcast so far? <laughs> well, so far it's this season, and okay, and okay, you know, because here's the thing: like, I'm the only woman on this podcast. Um, even our production editor's a dude. Don't get me wrong. I love you, my bro workers. You guys are awesome. But um, sometimes, you know, you just need you need to speak to something that is you, you have a unique position on. And I would say, being the only woman, I have a unique perspective. Certainly. Um, certainly. Fair enough. Yeah. So I, I can really appreciate this topic um, because I think it is so relevant. And um, especially just with what we see in culture. And it is so important for women to have a good understanding of what their role is in the church. So that's what we're going to get into today. And I think an excellent place to start, speaking of culture, is to talk about dun, 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 feminism. <laughs> so, All right, Morgan, bring us up to speed, because there's been a lot happening in like 100 years, yes, especially has, in the United States. It has been quite the century. So mm. um, the term feminism, um, it... We'll just define that right away. It describes political, cultural, and economic movements that aim to establish equal rights and legal protections for women. Now, as I'll discuss very briefly, these four waves of feminism, they all addressed these political, cultural, economic movements in different ways. So yeah. the first wave is what people are most familiar with, and that was in the late 19th and early 20th century, and women's suffrage was the big header for that. So that was women's right to vote and political power was necessary in order to gain any voice in society because at that time women were still like they couldn't vote. They literally had no political power. Mm. Um which mm. to me if I were which to think back that's distressing. Yeah. yeah. So that um it really culminated with the passage of the 19th amendment after you had all these meetings and right. the suffrage leaders like Susan B Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton Second wave came about in the 1960s. We were, um, you know, hot off the heels of the Second World War. And then you had other things like the Vietnam War getting started. But this is where a bigger aspect of social and economic justice came into play. So you had Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique and Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Like these books were really starting to deconstruct the idea like this culture of domesticity, mm. if I said so, that so, right. So, yeah, so second mm -hmm. wave was really kind of bringing out what? like It was like women aren't just meant to be housewives, yeah, you yeah, know, right, and, right. and also taking away that um, objectification of women. There was a counter um, Miss America pageant um, really? in, in mm -hmm. the 60s or 70s. and 68 and 69. Yes, really? and yeah. they, they actually paraded farm animals as the, as the participants. What? And they what? crowned a sheep Miss America in their pageant. Um, and so that was just, you know, that was, again, pushing against that objectification that women felt um, mm. that they were only 
seen in society as objects for men's pleasure. Yeah. Can um, you also argue, too, that in the 60s is really when a lot of the seeds were starting to be planted as far as for reproductive rights oh, and yes. the pro-abortion, well, sure. um, not pro-abortion, uh, pro-choice, pro um uh, so would you not argue that that was kind of the was seeds huge. were starting to be laid mm-hmm, there in because, the 60s for that as well? Right, because women started to want this, you know, um, autonomy, so to speak, over their own bodies. Um, so and that's also when there were different forms of birth control coming out. And um, that was, yeah, Roe versus Wade was passed in this period of the second wave, the 1960s, okay. the 1980s. Kind of so near the end of it. That was yeah. really one of the big culminations of second sure. wave. Sure. So third wave began in the 1990s. And I just find this hilarious. So I know if any hardcore feminists heard this, they would get mad at me. But it, a term that kept coming about was girl feminism, G-R-R-L. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just this girl. idea. Yeah, girl. <laughs> so, this idea that um, it was empowering women to define their own standards of beauty and femininity. Like, what does it mean to be a mm. woman? And leave that up to the woman. Um, this, this was... The biggest characterization for third wave feminism was intersectionality, whereas people would say the... Meaning what? Like, define that for us. So it was more inclusive feminism. So across race, class, sexual orientation even. So this is where people started to just kind of break down what it meant to be a woman and leaving that up to people to decide. Um, And so uh, this emerged out of second wave feminism retreat into academia, where it was really bred and defined in different terms, like in, um, you know, in academia. And it came out as like the big push for female empowerment. And finally, people argue, depending on who you talk to, there is a fourth (laughs) wave of feminism. There is disagreement. There yes. is disagreement. I was looking Even at this. Among there's, feminists. there's disagreement whether there's three or, or four. four. And it really just depends on who you're talking to, what you're reading. Um, but the biggest thing that people argue has started this fourth wave is the availability availability and the access of the internet Hmm. so now it's spanning even farther and it's globally more than just like maybe which was driven in the united states globally and instantaneously and Hmm. crosses even more intersectional boundaries where anyone can be a part of an online forum um part of that community i guess sure and we saw this especially with you know body positivity movements um sexual assault awareness with me too so a lot of good things came out of this um and but there's also a lot of things where we're like now we're all confused on what it means to be a woman and um, what the role of women um, in society, in the home. Yeah. And couldn't you argue too that like the fourth wave is almost kind of a newer group that's like almost kind of looking back over second and third and they're like, because mm. if you look at second and third, it almost seemed like second waivers still continued on, mm-hmm. but it was like maybe in more of a different setting. And then third wave is like where it hit the streets and they're like, sure. we're going to do this. And then fourth wave is like, I don't know if we like any of what you guys are talking about. And they're like, we're going to take our own little. Would you agree with that? I would, because whereas um, the second wave had, you know, at the end of it retreated into this, like these circles of higher learning, um, third wave busted it back out onto the streets again and protests and, you know, various um, uh, very public movements. And then fourth wave is just trying to figure out what to do with all of what came before. Mm-hmm. And so they like some of it. They really dislike some other parts of it. Um, but it is very interesting, especially as we think about how this ideology has influenced the American church. Right. 
Right, especially in the 20th century. Oh, I mean, for sure. And, and you know, coming in the 21st into, century, sure. you know, over the past yeah. 20, right. I would say the past 20 years, you've seen a huge shift in churches of how it's maybe affected it or maybe their response to it even has affected right. the church, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, with that, I mean, that gives us a really good background because I think it, it helps us understand what has been happening in our society today. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and from that, I think has brought to surface probably a lot of great discussions uh, in the church and um, and yet also should be as the church affirming uh, what God has affirmed throughout all ages. Right. right. You know, and it's like and, 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 and even, you know, we're going to bring this up on the podcast today. But like even in the time of Christ and the way that Jesus, you know, treated women and, and reacted uh, to things in his day and, and women being a majority of, of his followers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there were there, there was this that was unheard of in, in even first century, you know, and. Yeah. And so, you know, but that didn't start there. I mean, we're going to start mm-hmm. and go even back further. Uh, we're going to kind of begin uh, today by, you know, let's let's talk about the role of women in the church. But in order to do that, we really just got to back up and go all the way back to the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. We need to go back to to Genesis, to Genesis 1, and, and really see how even from the beginning of creation, we see men and women flourishing in God's design and God celebrating both of those roles. And, 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 and as we come into the New Testament, into the church, we see men and women are serving Christ. They're following after Christ. They're discipling uh, one another. And, 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 and there is this flourishing of God's church, right? And so um, let's, let's kind of talk about complementarianism because um, that is something that is uh, really uh, – uh, not not a hot button today, but I, I think it is something that over the last decade uh, is being uh, kicked around and talked about a, a lot more uh, than it had been. And, and, and when we say complementarianism, that that might be a new word um, mm-hmm. for people who are listening today. What someone someone define that for us? What is biblical complementarianism? Yeah, so complementarianism would be the belief that God has created both man and woman an equal value. They Mm -hmm. are completely equal in the value that he has given them, but he also has gifted to them different roles, responsibilities, and functions that complement one another and ultimately give glory to God in his creation. And while we're talking about this, just as a side note, the opposing view of complementarianism would be egalitarianism, meaning that there is inequality, not just in value, but inequality in everything, including responsibility. So basically men and women role, can do exactly function. the same thing. Both everyone, in design. I everyone think, yeah. is equal on the same plane in every single facet. Right. And they would argue heavily for this. And a complementarian would say, well, when I look at the Bible, the Bible seems to say, yes, there's equal value. Mm-hmm. There's never been a question of that biblically. Right. However, right. complementarianism would say, I do see in the Bible that there's different giftings, functions, and responsibilities that God has given to different, the different distinctions roles. for yes. men and women. Yeah. So yeah. like one quote, one thing I found this week, you know, they summed it up really well. They said, uh, complementarianism is equal in essence, dignity and value, mm-hmm. while complementary in design, by design, right? And yeah. so... And so it's it's once again emphasizing some things first of 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 similarities, right? Uh, we can go to Genesis one and see that mankind was made in the image of God, both mm-hmm. male and female, right? And so in their essence, in their value, in their dignity, like mankind has this relationship of being created in God's image, and they're of the same kind. I mean, we'll get mm-hmm. to this probably in Genesis in a minute, but yeah. And if you're sitting at home 
and you just heard that definition and you're like, hmm, essence, and you're thinking Trinity, you're on the right track. Complementarianism is an extremely Trinitarian belief system because God, yes, he is the same essence. The Trinity is the same essence, equal in value, but there is different functions in the Trinity. You have to see that when you go to scripture. Mm -hmm. God the Father didn't come to the world to live and die and be buried and rise again. That was... Mm -hmm. God the Son. Yeah. And so complementarianism is not just a um, biblical model, but it is a model that glorifies and uplifts the b most basic doctrine of Scripture, which is the Trinity, the Godhead. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So if you, ever, if you ever doubt God's value of men and women and like what he was doing, like just go back to Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, like there was no leaving out of right. any persons mm. there. Exactly. I mean, both Adam and Eve, a male and a female, were created to represent God to all of creation. Mm -hmm. And and by that, you know, they were exercising their dominion in creation. And I find it so, you know, right there, Genesis 1, not even a few verses into the Bible. And yeah. we see this role of men and women flourishing in God's design. And, and that dominion cannot happen with only one sex. I mean, mm -hmm. even the Bible says it there, let them have dominion. It doesn't mm -hmm. say let him have dominion mm -mm. or let her have dominion. It says let them have dominion. And so we see this relationship where men and women are flourishing and, and so what we're saying is, hey, the Bible presents this biblical view of complementarianism that, that men and women are both created in, in equal in essence and value and dignity, but they are created distinctively. They mm -hmm. are different. I mean, they're different by design. Uh, men and women are not interchangeable. They're, uh, even, even anatomy is mm -hmm. different, right? I mean, there's, there's these differences both in terms of who they are uh, by design. And, you know, in our day, we we have made so much of marriage and gender to be simply social mm -hmm. constructs. It is not. But, 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 but the Bible in Genesis 1 is just presenting this reality that, that, that from the beginning of time and, and from birth, that, that men and women have, uh, they are different uh, by design and yeah. how God has created them. And so let's just kind of, with that understanding today, let's dive into the Bible and see what is the Bible telling us about the role of women in the church, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we might go back, I think we'll start probably in Genesis and kind of lay a foundation because I think in our day, if people have a failed understanding of, of Genesis one and two, not if, no, <laughs> when, when our culture, when. our culture has when. a Currently. very, very, very mis big misunderstanding right, of right. Genesis so 1 and 2. So because we have, yes. because there we have go. a misunderstanding of Genesis 1 and 2, we, we begin often in our Bible in Genesis 3 mm -hmm. and, and we work from there. And, and because we have not uh, rightly uh, taught and believed and the church, the mainstream church has, has completely just thrown out Genesis 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. With that, we've we've thrown out biblical complementarianism. I mean, we, if you yeah. don't go back to its mm -hmm. roots in the Garden of Eden, and you don't see how that plays out, I mean, so much of what we're going to talk about of the role of women in the church by looking at First Corinthians or in First Timothy, as Paul's addressing these churches, the doctrine by which he is arguing for this is back in creation, right? Mm -hmm. So let me just ask you guys a question: When you all look at Genesis one and two, and 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 God's perfect design, what do you see being elevated, being uh, just celebrated there? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is that 
they were the image of God, the created in the image of, I think, well, first, obviously God is elevated above all this. He made man so that something in creation could reflect him and respond to that. You know, whereas all other creation, it, 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 it does sing the praises of God and you can see his handiwork in all of it. But creation of man and woman, he was creating something that could relate back to God. Hmm. And so I, I think before anything else, I mean, God is elevated through the image of sure, the woman de- that he created. Sure. Yeah. 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 They're definitely displaying God's image. They're God's representatives to this world and they're having dominion in that mm-hmm. sense of reigning over what God has created. Yeah. And sometimes we don't know what to do with Genesis two, right? Um, a lot of times <laughs> sure. we don't because yeah. we look at Genesis one and it seems like everything happens and then we go to Genesis two and we're like, and people even who oppose the Bible say, well, that doesn't make any sense because how do you talk about Genesis one twenty seven when it's talking about them, but Eve wasn't created till Genesis 2. And mm-hmm. the best description I've ever heard, and it makes complete sense when you read it, is Genesis 1 is like the 50,000-foot um, aerial view. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, Genesis 2 comes in like a slowdown, um, kind of like a rewind of, hey, here's some big things that happen, and it just starts there. Mm-hmm. And Genesis 2, the one thing that I'm confronted with every time I read it is, when woman wasn't there, it wasn't good. Yeah. Right? I know, right? Yeah. God and says so in Genesis 2, 18, it is not good. The same passage that people go to in our modern day to tear down what the Bible says about women and to argue that God is not for women and to say that women are somehow devalued by Christianity, the same passage is the passage that actually argues for the role of women, Mm -hmm. the value of women, and the importance of women. Certainly, certainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's look at that. Genesis 2, because here, like you're right, Stephen, like Genesis 1 and 2, we would say those are not two different accounts of creation uh, in the sense of like they happened in different times. Like those two is is Genesis two is is really diving into Genesis mm-hmm. one in more depth talking about uh the home I mean he's really talk God's talking about the family and 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 men and women and so in Genesis 2 18 God said this it is not good I mean out of everything in creation that that was mm-hmm. good God said this is not good that men uh, that man should be alone and then God said I will make him a helper fit for him. And, and, and we realize, that, you know, Adam's here and he's giving names to all of the animals and the livestock. And it's, you know, it's not like he's saying, you know, Betty and Susie and George. I mean, he's like, he's calling <laughs> them what they are. They're kind, you know, like that's a yeah. lion, that's an elephant. Like this is what it is. And, and, and it says there in, in verse 20, but, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so two times in this passage, we, we, we read that, uh, there's, God's going to make this helper for Adam. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think there's been some misunderstanding in terms of what does that word helper mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, some have taken that to, to, to um, wrongly state that it's, that there is some, this difference in dignity or value or dominion or, that or, yeah. men should have dominion over women. Right. And, and, but God says that he's making a helper for Adam and, yeah. and that is not a sign of weakness or inferiority, but if you really look up that word helper and you walk through the Old Testament and just do a word search, what you quickly define is that God is described as that mm-hmm. for Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in, in some way, I would say, you know, it is it is this uh, what what an empowerment like yeah. to see that in that role. Yeah. It's not an inferiority in this word. 
in this word, it is more describing the function of what is the function of man, the mm-hmm. glory of God. Thus, Adam could not fulfill this function on his own. There needed to be man and woman oh, to both so glorify God. And so yeah. even right. when you go to the New Testament, you see actually that both man and woman help one another, right? right. right. And yeah. there is different roles. There is different functions, but that does not right. take away from the fact that woman is not like, hey, Adam, here is your um, personal assistant who is going to take your notes mm-hmm. and get you coffee. Yes, yeah, certainly That's not, not what yeah. helper means. Helper actually, if you look even, like you said, throughout the Old Testament, it's Speaking of something like in Exodus eighteen fourteen, it talks about of my father, he was my help and he delivered me, right? And mm-hmm. it's like this idea of like, okay, help in that context is not getting coffee. Help is like f- helping fulfill the actual responsibility of what you were supposed to do. Almost a team. Of exercising that dominion. Right. Exactly. And yeah. it's almost this idea of a teamwork is given in Genesis 2. And there might be different functions on the team. Sure. But without the team. It's not happening, right? Yeah, I love that that it's team unity. terminology. Yeah, but- and then I love, like, I read out of the Christian Standard Bible, and the translation for um, Genesis one uh, 2.18 says, um, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Mm. So it, it really brings in that, that team, that partnership aspect where women was corresponding to man in, in a way that nothing else was. And it was Certainly. his counterpart that was, you know, necessary right. to fulfill the functions, you know? And, and so often when we talk about the role of men and women, we so often want to jump to the differences, you mm-hmm. know, where I think what Genesis is showing is like, hold on a second. Like Adam and Eve were um, of the same substance. Like they are the same. Shared a body you know, like, part. Like, well, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And they were both right. made of dust. So right. I, mean. I mean, you know, and, and there's even <laughs> some, there's even some like discussion whether like God made Eve out of a rib or you look at that word, it's literally this idea of man's side. It's like, it's almost like, you know, God took apart Adam and was like, all right, out of the same substance, we're going to, you know, have these two uh, people that are bearing my image. They're representing me both equally and, mm-hmm. and they're valued, but they are different and, and they're different by design. You know, it was Matthew Henry. This was a quote that often you hear a lot of times in weddings and things, but I just, I, I so love how he describes this. He says uh, in one of his commentaries, Matthew Henry states that the woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him and under his arm to be protective, protected and near his heart to be beloved. Oh, and I it's love like, that. Yeah. No, like it's just like God's emphasizing right there in creation, the equality, uh, the uh, equality of, of, of both man and woman. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so like, as we're wrapping up here in um, Genesis one and two, I think we are, we are seeing, straight right before our eyes very visible complementarianism on display mm-hmm. there are um in in its perfection in its yeah. perf- exactly in its perfect state right mm-hmm. i think we often forget too that genesis 1 and 2 come before genesis 3 right yeah, right and so why would we not go back to the perfect state the perfect image to see the perfect picture of what god created right often we go to like genesis foundation. three and four and then we're like mm. yeah we start from the uh, attitude of chapter three of everything being contrary and fighting yeah. and disorder yeah. uh, but but you know we do we do turn the page into genesis three and we realize that things are not like that anymore mm-hmm. uh, you look out in the world i mean you're talking about so much of what has happened in america and feminism but i mean even before that so much is uh conflict 
so much conflict. Yeah. It's that power struggle that people are trying to, um, I, I mean, I think of in uh, Genesis 3, where he said, um, you know, you will desire, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. It's mm. that power struggle initiated. But even in the fall, you know, it wasn't like you still see the, you know, how closely woven they are together, whereas, you know, Eve, you know, taking the fruit first and then Adam, like it wasn't like total blame on Eve or total blame on Adam. Like it was both of them, you know? So even still, like we try to divide like, oh, it was, you know, Adam had the, all the responsibility. Yeah, the woman let, made me do it. Right? Yeah, the, the woman serpent. made me do yeah, it. It's you just know? like we just, well, that's just who we are. I yeah, mean, yeah. this is in our nature, like God gave in our fallen equal, nature. Yeah. God gave out equal punishment. Yes, he did. For the roles that they played. Sure. And based on their role that they played, <laughs> he gave them different punishments. So in Genesis 3, though, in the fall of man, in what way do we see man's fall just drastically affecting the future of that unified, perfect, uh, complementary relationship? Well, I love what you said, Morgan, about how they're there comes onto the scene almost a struggle for authority and power. And Mm -hmm. you see that from Genesis one throughout the history books, you Mm -hmm. see it today and at different points in history, it's on different sides of it. Mm -hmm. And it's this struggle in between woman and man for who gets to do what and what am I not capable of doing? And what are you capable of doing that I want? Mm -hmm. And it changes which party, which whether it's man or woman who's saying that throughout the ages and even today. However, there is this almost it's a sense of pride Mm -hmm. and a struggle for authority that has come from Genesis three. And Paul even highlights that. And the Bible highlights that that would be an issue Mm -hmm. and that that is something that we have to contend with. Yeah. And that's not, we often blame the Bible for that. We say that's Christianity. That's the Bible. We don't do that, but culture does. When I say we, I mean our culture. But if you look in the Bible, the Bible mentions it and it says this will happen, but this was never God's plan or intention. And actually, if you want to fulfill God's plan and intention, go do this. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just kind of fast forward a little bit. I mean, we could spend so much time in the Old (laughs) Testament uh, talking about this, but let's just go right into Jesus's ministry, uh, you know, specifically what we all would see in, you know, the foundation of the church uh, being Christ and as Christ comes and as Christ calls his apostles and uh, and, and, and then from there, you know, we see the church take off uh, on the day of Pentecost, as we've been talking about, and um, we can go to places like Romans 16 and other places in the New Testament to see just how many women were involved in the early church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you see it right from even the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? Yeah. Like the women were allowed to follow and be a part of the company of Jesus, mm-hmm. which what in that which culture, was many of them. I mean, right. In that culture might not have been kosher in every setting that right. he was going in, right? You even and, see Mary like there, like sitting at Jesus' feet mm-hmm. as yeah. one of the learners I mean, that was revolutionary mm-hmm. in terms of that day. I think of the woman of the well in Samaria. <laughs> Sorry. It, it just, it really comes and like slaps you right in the face because not only was Jesus breaking down racial and <laughs> roles and uh, other things that play there, but he does break down some gender barriers because when she says, who are you to talk to me? She says, mm-hmm. a woman of Samaria. She didn't say a Samaritan. She so, made sure that woman was in there. Yeah. And like, it's it's amazing too, because not only did 
Jesus like have women following him and he welcomed that he sought them out I mean he sought that sought out this woman of Samaria he knew she was going to be there mm-hmm. he knew how you know what her needs were and he chose to reveal himself as the Messiah to her he said you know I who am speaking to you am he and and she because of that like told all of these people in Samaria and they you know started to believe in in who he was and so it's so cool how Jesus by no means were women an afterthought mm-hmm. in his eyes um well look at look at his um resurrection exactly who, who's at the tomb women right you women. Appeared first people to them. come to a grave when you've had a big impact big impact in their life i think of the, even that being part of the historical account yes yeah. i mean even i you mean don't that's go to somebody's yeah. grave because oh they were an afterthought and they didn't do anything for me you go to somebody's grave to pay homage and respect to them Mm-hmm. And you see that on display, the women were there. So mm-hmm. there are so many women in the New Testament that were actively involved in Christ's ministry. Uh, but then even at the beginning of the church, I mean, yeah. you see so many women. Um, Paul, as he's writing a letter in to the church in Rome uh, in chapter 16, he's just thanking all these people in the church. It's like his acknowledgement and, yeah, section it, but of like a book. He's shouting out. He's like <laughs> calling them out. He's like, yes, you know, way to be. It's a and, Twitter shout out here. Yeah, seriously. But so many of those ladies... And people in Romans 16 are women. You mm-hmm. see a Phoebe who is this Gentile, and uh, she's referred to as someone who's a servant of the church. You see uh, Prisca and Mary and Rufus's mother. You know, even Paul was like, hey, she's been like a mom to me as well. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like people that were – but these were women who were not just like – I mean, they're notable mentions. Yeah. Notable mentions in the church. And I would argue these are not everyone. These are not all of them. I think you see a sampling in Romans 16, and you see both men and women actively involved in the early church. So how were many of these women there in the early church really involved? I mean, Paul Paul says a few things in Romans 16. Mm-hmm. Um, can you think of some ways that, like, you know, we see them serving or involved or? Well, I mean, I, I think of uh, Prisca or Priscilla in some translations. Uh, she was involved in, in, in teaching and in even discipling Paul. Am I right? Uh, Paulus. Uh, Paulus. Uh, Paulus. Uh, well, yeah, but she right. worked with Paul. She I did. Mean, I mean, I'm certain that, you know, with her, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, I mean, they so much together. of that common yeah. discipling relationship that they had. But it is in Acts 18. You can go look that. Uh, you know, Paul goes, he's leaving, but mm-hmm. then Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue and he's, and he's he's teaching Christ, proclaiming Christ. But the Bible says in verse 26 that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him or taught him uh, the way of God more accurately. Yeah. So uh, it's just, it's so cool um, to see that because I mean, oh my goodness, like this Apollos, is Apollos. <laughs> this is Apollos, you know, and, and, and he was being right. taught by Priscilla and Aquila. And also I was reading somewhere, I don't know if it was um, Priscilla or somebody else, but a lot of women were trusted to carry um, these epistles to churches and they were used right. as couriers of the early scriptures. Uh, I think, I think uh, Phoebe, some would argue uh, even in Romans, they would say Phoebe or, um, yeah. So, I mean, they were actively involved in, in serving the church. So many of them were hosting the church in their homes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hosting these house churches, mm-hmm. uh, f- uh, financially supporting, they were patrons of the ministry and supporters of the church. And I think Priscilla is a good one because, you know, we often forget that, you know, we, we do see her there listed a number of times with her husband, but I even think, and, and, and I think this can be argued from Scripture, that whoever's mentioned first is often 
have a has a more prominent role in ministry. I mean, you see that in Acts, right? You see, especially when Barnabas went and got Saul. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, mm-hmm. but then it's Saul and Barnabas, and it's yeah. like it, the role shifts, and somebody begins to take more influence, more responsibility. And here in Acts 18, I don't think it's a coincidence that Priscilla is named first before her husband. So, I mean, why do y'all think that is? I mean, can we just stop there for a minute? I mean, speculate a moment. I mean, would you all agree with that? Disagree with that? Yeah. 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 I think that in scripture, word order can matter. And I think the way you see it is the more that you see it happen. Which is not just one time. Exactly. And that's what I would argue. Because while Greek does not necessarily have a specific order of words like English does, like where it has to be like this, this, and this. (laughs) Like um, there is a little bit of openness in Greek. However, if you're seeing it happen across the board, we have a we have something that we need to look at, and mm-hmm. I think that that's where you're going with that, and I would highly agree with that. I think it's because Priscilla played an important and key role in being a disciple maker along with her husband, yeah. but she had a key role that was not one of like, oh, Aquila's over there doing this, and Priscilla's um, she brings the food, she brings bread. the food to life group, <laughs> and Aquila is the one who's like doing everything else though. No. Priscilla and Aquila had a key part. And uh, if you want to use the life group analogy, they, they <laughs> led and they discipled sure. together. I mean, the Bible says she taught. Yeah. Yeah. she yes. taught. She, she, she taught explained yes. them the way more accurately. And I think what's so cool about this, you know, it's not just emphasizing Priscilla to the neglect of Aquila. It is it is showing that that partnership that was, you know, it is a reflection of the perfect partnership that Adam and Eve had in the garden, but some of that restored, you know, through the the disciple making and um, really through the spirit of Christ, Mm -hmm. they had that unity. Um, Which is even more a perfect picture of the Trinity, right? Yes, (laughs) Going back to, so yeah, but I I think that you see women on display here in the New Testament in an incredible way. It's Aquila. You also go over to Paul's writing to Timothy. Mm Mm-hmm. He doesn't mention Timothy's father or grandfather. Now, some would say maybe that's because they weren't converted. Maybe it's because they passed away. But it is interesting that he says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois Mm -hmm. and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that it is in thee also. Mm -hmm. These women had a key impacting I would argue teaching and formative role in the life of Timothy, who would come to be a pastor elder that Paul personally mentored. Certainly. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge uplifting saying these women pointed to Timothy in the right direction. Like they had a extreme role in his life. So influential. And I think, you know, I I think now what we want to do is we want to just pause a moment and and now really consider how is the early church functioning? What what are the roles in the early church? How do we see that played out in the epistles that uh, that that are given to the churches? And uh, because I think we've we've really, really helped understand and see that men and women are both actively, vibrantly mm-hmm. involved in uh, the body of Christ, you yeah. know? And I think I would just say right here at this moment, if you have not gone back and listened first to the nature of the church, uh, what the church is, we had two episodes on that. And then we also had the episode that precedes this 
uh, on on uh, elders leadership uh, in the church. Yeah. So if you've not listened to that, you need to stop right here and back up and go listen to those episodes and then pick back up here because we've laid a lot of foundation for that in previous episodes that we're not taking the time right now uh, to go into. Uh, but it would be really helpful in your understanding as we kind of see how this gets shaped out uh, in a fuller way. But let me just clarify before we jump into talking about in the church. I think it is so, so incredibly important in this topic and as well as any other topic that we do not say more than the Bible says, and we definitely don't say less than the Bible right. says. Yeah. And I would completely agree with you. Right, I, I think right. some, I think some who have waved the banner of complementarianism have done so to a fault. And, um, I won't name a specific name, but there are those specifically one or two people that I'm thinking of right now in this moment who would argue, not in this room. Wait a minute. Who's he talking about? There's two people that are uh, specifically that yeah. in, in a big broader roles, evangelicalism, big roles yeah. in evangelical Christianity who would argue that because they are complementarian, thus a woman cannot hold any office of leadership, whether it be socially in the home, whether it be in church. Right. And so that's not what we're saying that mm. we're not arguing complementarianism from that uh, view. view. And I think we need to say that from the get go, because if we don't, you can go look up complementarianism and you can come away with like, whoa, 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 okay, whoa, whoa. I don't know what they're talking about. No, because with this being such a hot button issue today, it what, is hot button for what, sure. what often happens is people want to be at a position and what they do is they go to the Bible to try and find out how that their position is supported through scripture. And what ends up happening is sometimes people can, you know, expound some scripture that's like, hey, that's really good. But you just jump ship over a whole bunch of other stuff. Or they don't start at the right to get there. place. Or certainly, certainly. So we just want to say, hey, as we're going into this topic, uh, you know, we don't want to say more than the Bible says, but at the same time, we don't want to say less. Yeah. And, and we want to be able to, you know, approach this humbly and, um, straightforwardly and and recognize that you know once again we're we're basing this in how Paul in in the New Testament bases this in the doctrine or the order of creation and so you got to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 uh, to see how did God create mankind and what did that look like in the nucleus of a family because even within a family you see God intends for both a husband and a wife or a male and female to have these different yet complementary roles and responsibilities uh, and you see that clearly in the family and so too as in the church so um, let's, I mean, there's so many places where we could begin. Um, uh, why don't we just start with the problematic passages and then go. Yeah. Timothy, uh, Timothy. Uh, <laughs> all right. You want to, I, I was going to say we could start in first Corinthians 11 ah. or 14, but you want to go to Timothy? Well, you said problematic passages. Yeah. And I think Timothy I think is like the number are, one. So. I think Timothy's like they that one passage. Some okay, so let's just, okay. Before we jump into the biblical text, why don't we just say what, where does the contention come from? I think where is the, you know, where is that any, coming from any, today? Anytime um, you hear a submission to authority, as in to male authority, that's when, I mean, me as a woman, and I know lots of other women in the general sphere out there, um, we bristle against because it's like, okay, we are subject to every single man in, in the church or in mm. society as a whole. So mm. that is 
can, you know, slight misconception in the way that it's presented. Um, Certainly. And I think that's yeah. also not been presented well. Exactly. Probably mm-hmm. in, in mainstream church, right? So Yeah. And I think contention also comes from the fact of like, what can, what can't women do? I think that yeah. that's been a huge push from feminism and some of the waves of feminism. And it's made its way into the church of women saying, well, what can't? And there's right. a focus on what can't instead of what can. Well, and I even think some more than, than feminism, really, I think the church has, uh, as you know, as a whole, not our church specifically, but it has presented it as like, okay, women cannot do this yeah. instead of, Instead of cultivating (laughs) and and building up and empowering women to say, like, this is what God has gifted you to do. You know, Mm. so that's one of my big irks is like, if you're hearing what you can't do all the time, then you are going to be bristling against it and discouraged. How negative is it to be like, hey, here's like a couple things you can't do. And then here's like and then it's just silence. Yeah. And you're like, wait, what? Okay. No, but I think I think what, what's happened in the church, in the broad church, is it, there's been such a conversation about differences, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and and trying to stress those differences, especially within the cultural movements of what's happening in terms of sexuality yeah, and all and of those things. Yeah, the gender fluidity. And so, just part of that, I think the emphasis has been placed on differences rather than on what we in Christ before God being created yes. before him share yeah. In, yeah. in similarness. I mean, in because uh, of a good thing, sure. highlighting the differences because yeah. that is needed yeah. in this culture, but we've kind of gone to an extreme. So mm-hmm. let's, you know, first Corinthians 11, Paul is working this through from the doctrine of creation. And in first Corinthians 11, um, He's really kind of sarcastic to him, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, first Corinthians was not a, um, uh, I don't know, we call it stellar letter in the sense that Paul is praising this church for how great they are and all the things that they have done. He is really rebuking the church for so many things, for things that they had failed to do or had uh, abused or have uh, not not done in the right way. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, it's shocking to read first Corinthians and what Paul indicts this church with. But in chapter 11, he's really in, indicting them on uh, kind of the order of their worship. I mean, he's talking about a number of things. He's talking about worship. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, but he does say in verse 3, he says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of, every, the head of a wife is her husband, and that the head of Christ is God. And then he goes on to talk about uh, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered, uh, uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head uh, were shaven. And so um, in verse three, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding and even a lot of viewpoints on how to translate that word head. Mm-hmm. What are some of those? So some would argue that this is a word of authority only. So, um, and some would also argue um, that the Greek word there for husband is also uh, just talking about a man Mm -hmm. because they can be interchangeable at times. However, when mentioned in certain contexts, they do, they do go to one or the other. Mm -hmm. However, people want to confuse that. And so they say, well, 
the, the head of authority? every head of every woman is, is man. man. And, any man. Yeah, any and man. So right. authority, authority, authority. Uh, it's a point of authority, and man has authority. Right. And that would be a viewpoint. Now, I would not hold to that viewpoint, and I don't think any one of us would. No. But that is a viewpoint that some would have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the egalitarian view earlier, and and the egalitarian view would come to First Corinthians eleven, and they would say the word head there doesn't mean head; it means source. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know the source of every woman is man, but the source of every man is Christ. And it's like, oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. And then we're like, no, wait a minute. But the source of Christ is God. Like you, because that's uh, not true. That's heresy. <laughs> <laughs> well, why? Because right. they no. they were all um, self existing together. Well, they're you know, self existing they together. And so, yes, in a sense, you could you could certainly say that Christ is eternally begotten from God. Sure. But God did not create no. Christ. It mm-hmm. was they eternally coexist together. Sure. Yeah. And so, yes, we use the and that's where I think an egalitarian person would go, and they would say, well you preach that Jesus was eternally begotten of the Father and so on. And yes, we do believe that, but we're not saying that Jesus was literally created Like at any time God. Jesus didn't exist. In the, they one, coexist yeah. together, sure. yes. So that word though, head, is is really a word uh, that is, is describing uh, kind of this authority. It's... Um, it, it, you know, it, it is not, you, you can go look and just look in the Bible, do a cross reference of how that word mm-hmm. is used. Look in, you know, extra biblical literature and see how that word is used. And it is almost nearly always used as a word of authority, not mm-hmm. as a word for source. Authority and not dominion. I think those can, okay. are two very, oh, like, certainly, yeah. certainly. Because yeah. I think sometimes people associate, right. the, they go back and they associate dominion with right. authority. So if somebody has authority, they're automatically having dominion over, which is sure. very different well, connotations. See, Paul's picking up once again, the, the analogy of the home, mm-hmm. uh, the picture of the home. And, and even, you know, I'm reading out the English standard version, you know, they tip their hat in the way that they would inter- interpret that by saying that the head of every wife is not man, but it is her husband Mm -hmm. and that the head of Christ is God. And I think what Paul's really getting at is that uh, every person has a head, right? I mean, everyone except for God has a head. Uh, and it's important to understand who that is uh, mm-hmm. for you. And so Paul, his concern here is, is, is not on whether women will pray or prophecy or, 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 or pray or prophesy. His focus, because he, he says it, he assumes it in mm-hmm. verse four, his focus is on the way that that is happening in the church and yeah. the way it's being done. And is it being done in a proper way or is it being done in an improper way? Because he uses a number of words. He uses words like dishonor, shame, disgraceful. And what he's doing is he's saying, hey, listen, in the church of God, as as men and women are praying, as they are prophesying, as they are involved in this mutual ministry of edification, we got to be very careful and we have to guard against this attitude of, of, of shame. What is he saying? That you're undermining God's intentions for his people, for uh, men and women, and and by nature, then they would dishonor God because what he says he he grounds this all in verse eight. He mm-hmm. he grounds it in verse eight because he says for, and this is the reason for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then he goes back to talking about the symbol authority. I mean, there's a lot there in First Corinthians 11. I know we're really boiling this down. But I think what you can do if you want to take time, you want to go back. Paul is going back to Genesis 
And he's saying, hey, this thing that's happening in the church in Corinth is not a cultural thing. This is not a this is not a new thing, but this is something that is deeply rooted in your understanding of the beginning, even from the doctrine of creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I would go ahead. Go ahead. Do you want to go, or do you want me to go? I was just gonna say really quick um, it, it, that grounding in verse eight, and also you know just to make sure we don't jump ship again and like, oh yes, you know, man at the top. It's like. In verse 11 through 12, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man and man is not independent of woman. Once again, highlighting that complementary nature, they mm. both have to be together. For just as woman right. came from man, so man comes through woman and all things come from God. Yeah. So it's not just one or the other. Right. To, or one to the exclusion both. of the other. So yeah. we had the same exact thought. So that means Way that we're Steven. on the track because yes. I was going to verse 11. I was like, <laughs> dude, you got to go to verse 11. <laughs> all right. So, so, I mean, I think Paul makes a very clear case in first Corinthians 11 that, that as men and women are both involved in the mutual ministry of the life of the church, that it's done in a way that honors Christ above mm-hmm. everything. Uh, but then he keeps going, right? He, he talks about uh, 1 Corinthians 13, talk about how love, but then he he goes into also dealing with now more problems in the church with how they were dealing with their prophecy. And uh, and it was just a complete mess of what was happening. And uh, in chapter 14, uh, kind of what's happening there in chapter 14? Um, let's see here. Yeah. So if you're just so to catch you up here, chapter 13 uh, is going to deal a lot with like some of the sign gifts and then talking about how love and whatnot is the most important thing. And then he kind of transitions out of that. And then he picks up in chapter 14 and I believe in chapter 14, it's isn't a, he highlighting some specific issues that they had had with this with prophecy this and with mm-hmm. tongues at this church in Corinth. And, and Paul makes the statement in verse 33, Uh, of chapter 14, he says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Mm -hmm. As in all the churches of the saints, he says, the woman should uh, keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission as the law also says, if there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for once again, he's talking about the shame aspect for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, man, that's a loaded couple verses. This is the one that I would say uh, the people who are fighting for more, like this is where people go and they're like, no, we don't like that. And sure. Because they I think latch we, onto the word, keep silent. And they're and like, we don't un- uh, but no, we don't, don't understand that. it. Uh, so right, help right. us. <laughs> So what is Paul saying? Man, I'll just say 1 Corinthians 14 is probably one of the most challenged, misunderstood, controversial controversial (laughs) topics. But when Paul is telling women there to remain silent, he is not saying this in isolation to the rest of the chapter. you got to remember, every verse is tied to a chapter. Every chapter is tied to a book. So ultimately, who is Paul talking to? Well, he's talking to a church in Corinth that was completely... Um, they were just a mess, man. They, they I don't know how <laughs> to say it. Than that. I mean, that's a kind, that's a kind uh, indictment, you know, but like, so he's telling them to remain silent, but he actually already said that two times in the chapter. Mm-hmm. He says it in verse 28 and he says it again in verse 30. And he's not talking about women in those instances, but he's actually talking about the gift of tongues and prophecy. He's talking about people that were prophesying or saying, or they're talking when they shouldn't have been talking, they should have been quiet. And, and what is, I think, okay, well, what is the inference? What is, what is all this showing? I Mm -hmm. think once again, Paul is talking to the specific church in Corinth that was filled with problems. And once again, things were not being done decently in order. And, and, and he's really calling for silence 
on the part of everybody in the church uh, who who is not doing worship in a biblically ordered way. Yeah. And if we go back to where we just were, we see that women were there was a there was a biblical way for women to take part in the service. Um, and they were opening their mouth, right? We just came from first Corinthians 11. And right. so if there is a biblical way, then he's not saying all of a sudden, he's not jumping ship just three chapters later, later saying you can't do anything. You can't say no. anything. Right. He's addressing go, go up to the verse right above it for God is not the author of confusion, right? God is not, God is not one that would have the worship of him. The key part, the worship time to be this time where everybody's spouting off different opinions from all over the room and there's 15 different things and then there's undermining of their home there's undermining of their husbands and then all of a sudden what happens the service is in complete disarray complete confusion paul's targeting i believe in these verses a specific issue in a specific church certainly that is happening now is there principles from that for us today certainly but we got to remember like paul's addressing this church and really the three opinions that are out there on what's happening in this verse is either one, Paul is saying that women should not speak in terms of prophecy, but then you go back and read 1 Corinthians 11 and you're like, wait a minute, he had already said that, so I wouldn't agree with that. Uh, or secondly, they talk about like them weighing in on that prophecy and being able to like talk about it. But once again, go back 1 Corinthians 11, I don't see that. Mm-hmm. Really, the third position that I think many people would hold to would be this thing, like there were women in the church, in the church in Corinth, that were just <laughs> asking these distracting like um questions like they and by doing it they were undermining their husbands or the people that they were their there spirit with. was wrong certainly yeah they had a wrong and, spirit uh you know so it's possible paul's talking to you know wives who are just like literally questioning prophecy that they're hearing in church but they're undermining their own husband's prophecy or like things that are being said and it's like it's creating the shame it's creating mm-hmm. this dishonor it's it's not once again elevating uh god's role and his design uh, for the family or for his church. And it's like everything is being done completely out of order. Um, and so, I, you know, personally, I'll just say where I'm at. And as I read 1 Corinthians you know, 14, I, I don't see Paul limiting women to speak in church at all times, in all places. I think he's, he's restricting a certain type of speech, a certain attitude there in 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. 14 that was problematic in the church in Corinth. What do you all think? Yeah, well, I mean, and I just see it right down in verse, uh, in chapter 14, verse 39. He says, so then my brothers and sisters be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. And he says brothers and sisters. Sure. So he's just sure. once again putting up guidelines and boundaries as everything should have, you know. Yeah. Because God is a God of order and of peace, right. not chaos. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so as we come away from 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, I think we need to start transitioning here. But mm. as we come away, I think we see that women and men both have roles in the church and they both have vocal roles in the church um, within God's biblical plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. So let's go to your passage that you say is problematic. Yeah, so we're jumping over to Timothy now here, okay? First Timothy. So I'm sure many of you, hopefully you're listening to all of our episodes. And uh, last week we went down (laughs) through first... Thank you, faithful listeners. Last week we went down through first Timothy 3 and some of you might have asked the question, 
why did they not read part of one of the verses? And <laughs> I believe that we did that intentionally so that that was not a focus of the episode. We wanted the last episode to really hone in on what true elder um, and deacon offices were in the church that God had given these offices to the church and what they truly meant without getting into any side discussions. And uh, But we do want to deal with these passages today because many people will go to these passages. And this is even, I believe, a point of contention in the church as a whole, the greater uh, church, not in our church, but in the greater church, I think that there's much discussion over um, what roles of leadership can women hold in the church? And so we've talked about that women do have a role. Women do have a function. Women are equal. And we've gone through all these things, but now we're kind of getting down to the nitty gritty of what actually is the role of women in the church, specifically also even in leadership. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So so I think we need to go to 1 Timothy 2, because I believe 1 Timothy 2 is going to support 1 Timothy 3. Well, it precedes it for sure. So. Yes, and it, it does precede it, but I believe Paul even starts a thought there because right. when you read right. in 1 Timothy um, yeah. 3, he says, this is a true saying, likewise, and he's sure. like connecting, I yeah. believe. No, I agree with that. So yeah. let's look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, probably verse 11, where it would kind of get um, questionable in the sense of like people coming to this in different places. But yeah. let's look at what the Bible says. Once again, like I think this is letting the Bible speak for itself and not not taking more from what the Bible says and neither like, you know, also taking less. Mm -hmm. So verse 11, uh, the Bible says, let a woman learn. Now let's just stop right there. What is Paul actually encouraging to happen in the church? He wants women to know things of the faith. He wants them to be well-versed and knowledgeable. He wants them to be theologians. I mean, he was one of Paul's fellow companions. It was Priscilla and and she was Mm well-learned in the faith. So this was also one of those things going back, like talking about Mary at the feet of Jesus, like, um, women always had a place in the early church of valued in the sense that was so revolutionary mm-hmm. for their day. But Paul says, so let a woman learn quietly and in all submissiveness. Now, what is he talking about? Well, let's clarify it by going into the rest of the chapter. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. And now you're listening to this and you're like, well, wait a minute, hold on a second. Didn't you just say that that women have this ability to teach? Aren't women teaching? So like before we say and clarify what Paul's saying by teaching and exercising authority, let's just talk briefly about how women did teach in the New Testament. Because once again, this cannot be one of those blanket uh, the statements that says, hey, women can't teach in any yeah. place, in any way, in mm-hmm. anything, right? Because where do we see? There's a number of places in the Bible where you see women clearly teaching. Mm-hmm. Priscilla and Acts. Yeah. Sure. Eunice so, so, and so Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos, Apollos right? Mm-hmm. right? Eunice and Lois teaching in Timothy. the second epistle of Timothy, just a little bit later, teaching Timothy. Right. Those are like big three that just instantly come to my mind. There's more, though. Do you have any, Morgan, that you uh, want to throw in? I'm, I don't want to be wrong, but Lydia, okay. was she? Did she? was she just hosting her house church or did she have a teaching... That. Yeah, that was that, that's one of those things that's like kind of a toss-up. Like, and I don't, yeah, and I don't, you and don't I, know. Once again, like I don't want to take more than what the Bible's saying sure. there or less. And so it is ambiguous, and I would rather leave, it, leave in it ambiguous than like try to make it a definitive statement on what the Bible doesn't say. Yeah. But she did play a key role. However, she was very yes. active. And even if she were teaching, I think you see that in accordance with how Priscilla and Aquila were instructing mm-hmm. uh, Apollos. Mm-hmm. Even in Colossians 3, you know, I mean, Colossians 3 is a... Once again, the Apostle Paul, as he's talking to a church, uh, but in Colossians 3, verse 16, um, notice he says, let the word of Christ 
uh, dwell in you richly, teaching mm-hmm. and admonishing who? One another. One another. One another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So Paul is once again admonishing the church in Colossians 3 to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the center of our teaching of why we're together teaching and admonishing one another. Paul doesn't say admonishing men to men, women to women. He says one another. And uh, also, you know, this is something that I think is often forgot about is music in the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, even people that would hold like a super restrictive role of women in the church that, you know, I would not agree with, our church would not agree with. Yet, Yet so much of the music that is sung in the church is written by by women, mm-hmm. yeah, right? And so even through that, like there is this uh, edification through song, Paul hits on it, Colossians 3. What about even the Great Commission? Mm-hmm. You know, we often all. forget that, but uh, go to all the all world are going. and make, make disciples. disciples. Yep. How are they making disciples? Teaching them all that like I've teaching. commanded you. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the case is there biblically. Sure. And I, I personally believe this is me. Um, so you guys might disagree with me, which awesome, cool. Uh, but I believe that in first Timothy two, Paul is very specific in the language he uses. He says, I suffer them not to teach nor that, that Greek word there and not it's a connect. I believe it's a connecting there and not this word that he uses often it's used in this verse. <laughs> so people are always like, well, how else is it used in scripture? Well, it's used in this verse, okay? But this word literally means to domineer, govern, or mastery. I also believe this is going to connect into chapter three, where it talks about overseers, bishops, elders, and elders, bishops in the church. Overseers. Yeah. And so I believe Paul is specifically referencing in these verses a function of teaching that is connected to an authoritative role in the church, mm-hmm. a, I believe, bishop-elder function of overseeing and shepherding, and that this teaching is very special and specific right. to that function because, guess what? He's only two to three verses away from going into that yeah. role. No, yeah. I think he's. I think he's signing that because he says in verse twelve, and then it, you have to let. You're left with the question of, well, well, who does? Who teaches in that way? Yeah. Who teaches in a way of exercising authority and you and governing, governing in the yeah. church and ruling and leading the church in that way? Well, who does that? Well, he says it in chapter three. He's talking about the office of an overseer and mm-hmm. and going back. Remember, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, go back and we spend a lot of time here. But Paul is just clearly laying it out there. It's a husband of one wife. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's signaling uh, a, a certain type of man. Yeah. Uh, he, he and I talks think that's, about, that's important, a certain type of man. It's not suddenly opened up, okay, right. it's not woman, so it's every man. Yeah, and that's often what's so thrown around. It's yeah. like men versus women. And, and Paul does not have that at all in mind because he's talking about how men and women both are involved in the life of the church and the edification of the church. But then in first Timothy three in chapter two, going into three, he kind of shifts gears and he says, listen, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he's talking about like that office of, uh, of a bishop, of a pastor of oversight, uh, this person, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife. And then even as he talks about secondly, the second office of the church and the office of a deacon, you know, some people talk about Phoebe. Well, wasn't Phoebe a, a deacon? Well, the word deacon, Deacon just simply means servant. And and as I see it in the New Testament, Phoebe was functioning as a servant of the church. Mm-hmm. But as Paul delineates to Timothy the office of a deacon, 
uh, he once again talks about a, a certain type of man. And then he mm-hmm. says in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified. And if you read that, you're like, oh, well, then maybe they can have women deacons too. But then he goes right back in verse 12 and he says, then let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Mm-hmm. So Paul's getting at something there in First Timothy that is different. There's a type of teaching, I think, in First Timothy 2 yes. and really all of First Timothy that Paul is arguing for that is different than what we were talking about earlier. How do you guys yeah. see that? I yeah, mean, you can't, I don't believe you can get around this. Some mm-hmm. have tried from the egalitarian uh, viewpoint to say, well, he's just saying that you need to be a spouse that is faithful. Um, then why didn't he say that uh, you need to be faithful to the person that you've married? He uses the specific words for man-husband and woman-slash-wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could actually read and translate this as a one-woman man, uh, the way that the... Um, <laughs> the no, I'm serious. The well, way, because the their culture that was filled yeah. with polygamy. The way that the so words like, are used, yeah. the, the case and function of the words, you could translate it like huh. that. However... Um, by the way, side note here, I, I love languages. Um, we were just talking about 1 Corinthians 11 and how some translations might not use man and woman. They're the same exact words used here. Mm-hmm. The same exact words for husband and wife are the same ones used in 1 Corinthians 11. Right. And I believe there's some connection right. uh, there. But anyway, you're not getting around this. Mm-hmm. I don't sure. believe. No, I believe Paul is specifically writing to a church in its formative state. You have to remember the church at Rome is... I mean, it's a little bit more formed than where Timothy is on like a church planning frontier kind of, right? Mm -hmm. And Paul's writing him and he's saying, hey, Timothy, um, this isn't just a man-woman thing. Remember, he says, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires the good work. But then he goes into qualifications that is going to completely set aside many men. Mm -hmm. And in fact, probably the majority of men that Timothy's working with. He's saying, Timothy... God, because of the way that he has ordained this office, is calling a qualified type of man to fulfill the role of pastor elder. And I believe that that's what he's saying here. And he doesn't do so to the exclusion of women. No. Because he mentions women all throughout 1 Timothy. And he's, in fact, going to go back in later in Timothy and talk about how they need to be discipling and teaching and the importance of that. Right. And I think it's so important to remember just once again, like Paul is not pulling this stuff and these guidelines and these qualifications out of nowhere. (laughs) He has set the stage um, by going back to how God set the stage, you know, with headship and order of creation and authority in the house. Right. Ephesians 5. Yeah. yeah, Basically. (laughs) And so that's the thing, like we cannot come to this and just see like this passage in isolation from everything else we've already talked about. Why I think you see such of it. Uh, not clearly, uh, you know, practiced in the broad church today is because we've just completely thrown out God's, you know, design for the home mm-hmm. and and how that, you know, both people, husband and wife, equal in value and dignity, but different in role, mm-hmm. different in 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 function. And so, I think what Paul has in mind here in First Timothy two. I think it's really clear. So he's writing to Timothy. He's writing as he's setting up elders in these churches, and he's very clear on the type of person that it is. And with that type of office, Paul is arguing there's a certain type of function, and that is this teaching oversight, this mm-hmm. teaching authority. And and it's and it's somebody who is is preaching the word of God is um, is is. Um, 
you know, is passing down uh, the doctrines of the faith in a very authoritative uh, type of way. And it's very public in the sense that, you know, you see that in First Timothy uh, 2. Uh, you see it also in First in Timothy uh, 5, uh, verse 17. And so, um, you know, as I come to understand the Bible and what Paul's arguing here, I think he's clearly arguing in First Timothy 2 and 3 that the office and the function of publicly teaching or preaching in this authoritative type of way to the gathering of the church is reserved for a certain kind of man and mm-hmm. an elder in the church, a qualified elder in the church. And, um, and he's rooting it once again in the creation of the world, like going back to, going back to Genesis. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, any thoughts on that? Any yeah, takeaways from and that? I would even, I would even take it a step further personally and just say that, even in the case of deacons, he connects in verse eight there with a word that means in like manner, talking about the qualifications and he continues on. And there's something specific about the office of a deacon that he mentions here in first Timothy three. And many people will go to Romans 16 and say, Phoebe was a deaconess. Well, yes, the term word for servant is there, (laughs) but it's the same word. So did Phoebe function like a servant? Well, sure she did. She served in an incredible way in that church. However, in again, this church planning frontier, Timothy, Paul is setting aside and saying, hey, Timothy, the office of a deacon, this leadership role of the church, there's two specific God-given offices of leadership. He says, Timothy, in this office, it's the same in like manner, to the elders that they need to be the husband of one wife. And it's very similar language. And I don't think you can get around that this office of leadership that is complementing this elder led uh, model Mm -hmm. is the same language is used. Yeah. And I, I don't think we can stress it enough that Paul is not tearing down the capability of women to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that there is this difference of, of teaching and that having that authoritative role as the shepherd of the church. Because I mean, and think about it, like when, when Priscilla and Aquila were teaching Apollos, they weren't probably teaching him in front of everybody. It was a that very one on one discipleship. Yeah, they, they took him aside. aside. And the same thing as, you know, um Timothy was being brought up. That was they were as they were raising him as a child, his mom and his grandma. So it like he Paul never says like women can't you know, they're not capable of teaching. Yeah. And I I would also say too that many times when there's a lot of pushback to this, it's like well, that means that there's an inequality. And I would push back to that saying role does not ter- determine dignity or no, equality. By no and means. that is a false equivocation that has happened in our right. in our culture right. today. That's so saying true. Saying that r- your role determines your dignity ah. and your value. And your role never determines dignity and value. Because right. you were anti-biblical if you believe that. Because Genesis yeah. 1 and 2 says yeah. your dignity and value comes from one place and it's God. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're living in the midst of a culture war right now. Oh, and yeah. everything's like, you know, inflamed. And, and, and so often I think we can so easily react in the church of God and be like, well, look, well, look what's happened in society. Look what's happened here. Like uh, the Bible needs to be updated. We need to move in this way. And Paul's like, even there in, in first century, He's like, hold on a second. Like, this isn't a cultural thing. Like, let's go back to the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. And like when people are like rebelling or like pushing back against of, of, of the way of that the Bible has ordained, um, the way that God has ordained the family, the way that he has ordained his church, like 
if you have issue with that, it's not issue with what's mm. there. It's mm-hmm. like you have issue fundamentally with God and the way that he has designed he, mm-hmm. he, our, our, our human life. Like, yeah. and, 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 and what we're trying to say, I think this is where we want to kind of end today on the podcast, is the church should be a place where you see both men and women in their uh, roles and in the and in the place that God has them to be a, a place where they are just flourishing and all mm-hmm. that God has intended them to be. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, once again, like talk about the office of an elder. It's not a it's not a woman man thing. It's 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 truly like Paul saying, hey, both men and women are active and involved in life of the church. They're both teaching. They're involved in all these things. But in the church of God, there's a there's a kind of um, headship. There's a kind of authority that Paul is articulating once again from the home and then from creation. So you know, as we kind of pull away uh, from our discussion today, man, this has been great, and mm-hmm. I hope this has been helpful uh, for you, our listeners. I'll just say, I hope the things we talked about today are kind of a springboard into understanding these things. And then also I would encourage you to flourish uh, in the places and the ways that God has called you. And, you know, like um, the, the church should be a place where, where we see um, specifically as we're talking about today, the role of women in the church. I mean, this should be celebrated. Like mm-hmm. um, Morgan, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, what I would, would you want people to hear as they come away from this today? Yeah. A church is a place where, cultivation of gifts and empowering people, all people, men and women, to use their gifts for the edification of believers because the Lord did not, like his intention is not for us to be so divided over men making things, men's issues and women's issues that suddenly we're not getting anything done. But he has created men and women in such a beautiful um, union together. They work in harmony and in symphony. And when the church um, reaches that understanding, instead of saying, oh, well, these are all the things women can't do. It's okay, then stop saying that and say, look, these we want to lift up our sisters and show them how they can serve and what they were created for and how they were you know, how we are meant to to flourish, like you sure. said. And see them leading in ministries yes. and areas of, of service and I mean and, 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 and teaching making and, disciples. and making disciples <laughs> and know? seeing the church go forward yes. and 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 truly celebrating that. I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, as I kinda take away from this and just the study that we've even done and then even our discussion, I think that there's just a couple of big things that just like instantly just hit me in the face. And like <laughs> number one is that um men and women are equal in value and dignity before God. Yeah. Uh, there's no discussion. There's no argument. If you believe in the Bible, you must believe that. And no role or responsibility will ever change that. Um, it's kind of like we think of like the, um, how there's um, like this belief that almost like if, if a woman were to be president, you know, that would give more value to women. And no, that won't take away or add value to you because mm-hmm. God has instilled in you the value and dignity that you possess. And uh, I also believe that something that has kind of slapped me in the face this week, too, is that what you were saying, Morgan, the encouragement of women to serve and to know God, to mm-hmm. learn about him. Um, I think that there has been a discrepancy in uh, the church, Big C Church, that um, women and theology don't mix. Um, Mm -hmm. and and that might be a broad brush statement, but I've seen it to where it's like, you know, the man, he's going to go study theology and the woman, she's going to like learn how to do this and it'll be all fit together. No, women should be theologians as well. Women should be able to articulate their belief from God's word based on what they have studied and found. 
Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. Go for it. Right. Um, I firmly believe that women should be encouraged to teach, to lead, and to be disciple makers in the church. Mm-hmm. And we've clearly stated, um, at least my belief and your belief and your belief on First Timothy 3. Okay, so those two offices are there for biblical qualified men. Okay, th- mm-hmm. that's there. Everything else is on the table currently because yeah. <laughs> scripture has given a lot of freedom. Yeah. So let's roll, let's encourage, let's teach, let's build up and let's edify one another to good works instead of being divisive and focusing on all these exclusions and exceptions and sure. yada, yada, yada. Well, because ultimately, let's encourage yeah. unity and let's encourage this pushing forward with women taking an active role in yeah. the areas that God has given to them. Can I share one final quote? Yeah, yeah, no, do yeah, it. yeah. Um, this is from Felicia Masonheimer. Um, she has her own podcast and, you know, she has a talk um, similar to this and she has some different ideas where we might um, not agree, but she had this amazing quote, um, just how people, you know, we want to protect the church from falling into this cultural nightmare of what is, you know, modern secular feminism. And she said, when you have women who are walking by the spirit of God, who love the gospel and are dedicated to its truth, then there is absolutely no danger of secular feminism infiltrating the church. Mm, that's it's good. It's good. Oh, that's a good quote. And, uh, you know, ultimately it's for the building up of the body of Christ because mm-hmm. we're called to one body. And um, when Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, well, why are we doing this? Because there's this outflowing of thankfulness in your heart to God. And, uh, and whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God, the Father through him, and ultimately recognizing that we are made in his image. And God created both men and women to be his image bearers, to declare, uh, to be his representatives uh, in this world. I mean, it's just what an incredible privilege, like to see the church come together and 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 see how in Christ and before God, like we are the same in, in essence and dignity and value. And although roles and functions look different, ultimately is done to the praise of our Father and giving glory to Him. Well, thank you for listening to Where We Land, Christ, Culture, and the Church. Listen, if there's anything you've heard us talk about on the show today uh, that you'd like to know more about, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So send us your thoughts, questions, and feedback by sending us an email at whereweland.org. You can also message us on Facebook by finding Where We Land, a Facebook account. Listen, on our next episode, we're going to be talking about really the ministry of the church and how in the body of Christ, uh, we see us flourishing in the roles that God has given us. So, We hope you join us here next time. We'll see you then.